Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place and we ask that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. God, as we embark this journey of the Psalms, I pray, God, that we'd realize in these passages, in these scriptures, there is something deep, something profound, something angry, something visceral taking place. And I pray, God, that we'd realize that as we stand before you, we stand before you in our completeness. The good, the bad, the, the confused, the angry, the, the, the joyful, the happy, all these things are together. And the Psalms capture the human spirit, the human condition, better than almost any scriptures in the entire Bible. And I pray, God, as we walk through them, we would see you, we would understand you. God, thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. We are starting a brand new series uh, today called The Psalms of Summer. And I got to confess to you, making that intro video was a lot of fun. And um, it's kind of hard to pick just, you know, music that captures uh, summertime. You know, as Canadians, we are... um, we're kind of starved for sunshine, let's be honest, and uh, whenever it comes, we kind of rush out, race out to kind of go capture it, go experience it, and summertime is a time where you think of songs, right? Like, if I said to you, like, what do you think about when you see the beach, or what, are you, what do you think about when you see the sunset, or all these type of things, right? Music captures that. Well, um, the Psalms are this book in the Bible that, for most part, people think of it as nice poetry, these are nice poetry. These are nice things. But there's something more going on in it. Uh, one of my favorite authors, a guy by the name N.T. Wright, says this about the Psalms. Well, it surprises me that no one need make a case for the Psalms, but in a great many contemporary churches, something very odd has happened, which is that many of the newer churches write their own worship songs, which is wonderful. But I'm all in favor of people writing their own worship songs in every possible idiom, but they often simply forget the Psalms. You can go to many churches where if you attend week after week after week, you will never sing or read the Psalms. He goes on to say this. There's something very peculiar about that because in pretty well every branch of the Christian tradition for 2,000 years, the Psalms have been the backbone of Christian worship. Certainly in all traditional uh, denominations, but in many non-traditional ones as well, it is assumed that the Psalms are the heart of worship. It's interesting to think about that in our Bible is this book of of all these songs, all these verses, all these ideas and thoughts. And for most part, churches today are kind of, we've kind of gone away from that a little bit. We've kind of forgotten about what they are. Now, as we try to do here at UCC a lot, as you try to make sure that the Bible is understood in the Hebrew context, especially the Old Testament, as it is written first to the Jewish people. And to the Jewish people, the Psalms were this book that was uh, for them and, and spoke to them in many different ways. The word, the word uh, Psalms actually means tehillim in, uh, in the Hebrew. And tehillim is not just simply a song. It is, it is worship. It is, it is an utterance of the Spirit. And that's what the Psalms are. Um, Tehillim, Psalms in the Hebrew, is a sacred hymnal of the Jewish people. The Levites sang the Psalms in the ancient temple. So as the people would gather together at different times of the year, um, these Psalms, these songs were sung to the people. The Psalms are used in liturgy of Jewish spiritual life and practices. For example, the Songs of Ascent. So in the Bible, there's um, Psalms called, uh, and it'll say in 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 your scriptures, the Songs of Ascent. These are the songs you sang as you walked to church. And the idea behind it was, is to prepare yourself to be in God's presence. The songs of ascending to God's mountain, to God's throne. In um, the Passover meal, in um, 
and, 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 and Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and all these different Jewish holidays and all these different Jewish contexts, these psalms were central to the worship. But not only that, the psalms were in the daily life of the Jewish person as well too. So in the morning, you would read these psalms. In the afternoon, you would read these psalms. And as you went to bed at night, you would read these psalms. Why? Because these were the rhythms of what was sacred in the life of these believers. Uh, another writer says this, and no other writings, whether sacred or secular, are the heart and soul of humans more clearly revealed than in the Psalms. The sighs, sobs, and songs buried deeply within human spirits find their release and utter their message through these 150 Psalms. They review the past, the present, and preview the future. Here's what's interesting as well, too, a little fun fact for you. The Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament, and as a matter of fact, Jesus quoted the Psalms twice as much as any other book of the Bible. Who knows the second book that Jesus quoted the most? I mean, no. Psalms was the first one. was the second one? There's no prize. It's just bragging rights. Isaiah. Yes, that's right. Isaiah. Isaiah is the second most quoted book in the New Testament by Jesus, but Psalms are number one. So not only are the Psalms something that are, that are sung, there's something prophetic about them. And we're going to look at that, actually. We're going to look at a particular Psalm that that forecasts the future. So there is more going on in the Psalms than pretty poetry. There is more going on in the, song, in the Psalms than just songs that people would sing. There is something that is actually uh, taking place in it. And another thing as well, too, is that what people need to understand about the Psalms is they are written by different authors. So David, for example, wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms, but other people had voices in it as well too. A person by the name of Asaph, and we don't know quite who this person was, but there are 12 Psalms in the book of Psalms attributed to them. Um, King Solomon wrote uh, two of the Psalms. Sons of Korah, not the sons of anarchy, but the sons of Korah, they wrote um, 11 of the Psalms as well too. And again, we don't know who these individuals are, but we know that whatever they wrote were included in the songbook of Israel. Jeremiah the prophet wrote one of them, Haggai the prophet, Zechariah, and Moses. Moses wrote the first song. The oldest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 90. And it was written around 1450 BC. Psalms isn't a, a song. It is a choir. It is many voices coming together, giving us different perspectives of who God is and our plights as humanity. And so the oldest psalm was written by Moses in about 1450. The newest psalm, uh, or New, not as in noon for us, but it's Psalm number one, actually. It's like the uh, writers, as the Hebrew people were putting it together, they, so, they wrote Psalm 1, and this is written around 440 BC. So about a thousand years between the first song being written and the last song being written. And what's interesting is, through the books of the Bible, whether the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, or the prophets or the history writings, Psalms are taking place in the background. And so some psalms, for example, like Jeremiah's psalm, is a psalm of exile, they call it, right? It's a psalm of them being captive in Babylon, right? Other psalms are different parts there. And so what we see with the psalms is there's a wide variety of people speaking into it, but it's also capturing a wide variety of human experience, which is, I think, kind of fascinating. The book of Psalms, which is 150 chapters, is actually broken up into five books. So you'll see in, for example, if you open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, it'll say book 1. And every 30 Psalms is book two, book three, book four, book five. One commentator um, said this, and I'm not sure if I, 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 I agree 100%, but I can kind of see what they're talking about, is they say the five books of the Psalms uh, mirror the five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that the first book captures the creation accounts and, and has that part of it. I didn't see that as explicitly as I could, but I thought it was interesting, right, that that... that 
this book was broken up in, in the way it was. So Psalms is kind of an interesting book. Here's another little piece of trivia for you. The very, um, if you were to say, okay, count all the chapters in the Bible, count all of them together, what would be the very middle book of the Bible? Well, the answer is Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the most, is the very center of the Bible. And of course, and the very center of Psalm 118 is Psalm 8. This is considered the, 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 the very center verse in all the Bible. And look what it tells us, right? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. This is the, the very center verse. It's trivia. I don't want to put too much stock as in like, oh, God kind of put it together this way. But I think it's kind of interesting. That the very center of our Bible is Psalm 118. And the very center of Psalm 118 is this verse there about taking our refuge in, uh, in God and not humanity. Um, Henri Nouwen. Henri Nouwen is a, uh, what you would call a Christian mystic. Now, what I mean by Christian mystic, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but there are Christians who have a more creative bent, a more um, esoteric bent about them. They see things differently. And Henri Nouwen uh, was like a brilliant, brilliant writer, but he was, he was what I would consider a Christian mystic. He had, much of his writings are very much uh, so we can kind of transport you to the heart of God. Uh, one of his books on the prodigal is one of my favorite books. It's, it's a fantastic book, a look at the life of the prodigal. Well, Henri Nouwen was fascinated by the Psalms, and he said this about them. Slowly these words enter in the center of my heart. There are more than ideas, images, comparisons. They become a real presence. After a day with much work or with many tensions, you feel that you can let go in safety and realize how good it is to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. He goes on to say this, Many times I have thought, if I'm ever sent to prison, if I'm ever subjected to hunger, pain, torture, or humiliation, I hope and pray that they let me keep the Psalms. The Psalms will keep my spirit alive. The Psalms will allow me to comfort others. The Psalms will prove the most powerful, yes, the most revolutionary weapon against the oppressor and the torturer. I think it's kind of interesting that Henri kind of figures something out here that one of the things that the Psalms does for us is it really captures the human experience, right? We've talked about this at UCC a lot and, you know, to repeat it again, control is an illusion, we don't control our lives. We don't control the outcomes of our lives. We don't control even in the moments of our lives. We'd like to think we would. We do not. Uh, whether it's uh, finances, whether it's jobs, whether it's relationships, whether it's health, right? We are fragile beings. And in the Psalms, this fragility, this, this, this tenderness, this uh, frailness of, of the human condition, it's seen so clearly, so plainly. And so Henri Nouan says something so interesting. He says that um, if I'm sent to prison, if I'm sent somewhere where torture or um, uh, um, uh, oppression is going to be there, the Psalms are what are going to comfort me. And I actually think that's absolutely true. Out of almost every book in the Bible, in the Psalms, you can see that. So this morning, what I want to do is uh, I just want to give you an overview of the book of Psalms. I've been rereading the Psalms over the last several weeks, just kind of going through reading and reading them. And I have a pad of paper and I write down some ideas. And um, I've kind of captured five major themes that I see in the book of Psalms. After today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at individual Psalms. And we're going to take a look at them. We're going to center, see what they say and what they can teach us. Because I think there's so much more going on in the Psalms than we understand. But when I read the book of Psalms repeatedly and over and over again, I found five major themes about the book itself. And so I'm going to kind of give you five lessons from the book of Psalms um, to kind of start off our series. The first thing that I think the Psalm teaches us is the Lord hears. Um, many years ago, I was, uh, had the opportunity to go visit uh, um, a temple of another religion. And at the front of the temple was this idol. 
and I had the opportunity to see how a, uh, a worship service took place. And what took place was, for the first aspect, first part of this worship service to this deity, um, the priests embarked upon this whole ritual of waking the god up. I thought it was kind of interesting. So what they would do is they would bring offerings and they would light candles and they would have symbols. They would crash, you know, they'd make lots of noises. And it was explained to us that they have to wake the deity up because, you know, they don't want to come and, and, and tell their prayers. They don't want to speak their, their uh, supplications to somebody who's not listening. And so they wanted to wake the deity up. And so what I find so interesting about that is I was standing in the back there watching this, observing this, kind of reflecting on it, is when we look at the book of Psalms, one of the things we see the most is we have a God that listens, right? Time and time again, one of the themes that David and the other writers say is God hears. God hears us. And this is not just a statement of, you know, you know God hears everything, so God knows, but it's not just a listening of, oh, I hear you, right? Sometimes in my more um, uh, distracted times, my wife will be talking to me and I'll forget. I won't even hear anything she says. But we, ha- we men have this, this spiritual gift of capturing the last sentence. So when we're asked, what did I just say? We can repeat that last sentence, no problem, uh, without actually understanding anything what's going on in the actual sentence, right? That is not really hearing as much as it is parroting back what was said. Well, we can kind of look at God that way too. Right? Have you ever prayed a prayer? Have you ever spoken to God in a way and you say to yourself afterwards, did he, did he hear that? Shouldn't there be like, a, like, like lightning or thunder or something? Even when I was at that, the temple, when I was at the back there seeing this, this idol, receiving all this worship, all, receiving all this wake-up calls, I thought to myself, well, it's kind of unsatisfying that nothing changes in this, in this idol. Like, I at least want the eyes to open up or, or stand up or something kind of dramatic to take place to at least let you know they woke up, right? Uh, that'd be terrifying as well, too, in a whole different theology, but that's a different conversation. But I think, like, can this, de- can this thing actually do something? Well, sometimes when we pray, when we speak to God, and in the moments of our lives when we, we, we just feel so much um, exhaustion, as Julie had mentioned, or so much tension or, or, or disarray in our lives, we speak to God and we go, you know, did he hear? When we pray, did, did God listen? Did he, did he hear what I said or do I need to repeat it? Do I need to pray a formula? Maybe that'll help him understand or hear me? Or, or, or you know, do, I, do I need to say these sacred words? Do I need to formulate it in such a way? And if it's a prayer request we prayed over and over again or something that's on our hearts for a longer period of time, there can be the sense of like, well, maybe God's not listening. The Psalms teaches us that in our lives, in the different stages of our lives, the different aspects of our lives, God hears us. Look what Psalm 22 verse 24 says. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Right? This is who, this is the God that we serve. That, you know, despite the circumstances of our lives, despite what we, 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 we go through, despite what is done to us and uh, in, in different aspects, whatever we say to God, however we speak to him, he listens. He hears us. And this is something that happens time and time again in the book of Psalms. The next lesson I think that we see in the book of Psalms is the Lord is present in our sin, storms, and suffering. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, right? When we talk about sin, what we really have to confess, what we have to be honest about, this is something that we've done, right? This is internal. 
something we've seen, something we've done, something we've, we've said, the way we behave, right? This is a choice that we've made. That is what sin is, right? It is a choice to go away from God rather than towards God, right? And so in the Psalms, we see that this sin does not repel God from us. We've said this before at UCC, and we talked a little bit about this with the Galatians, right? Our sin does not catch God by surprise. It's not like he goes, oh, I cannot believe I didn't, I, I didn't see that coming in terms of the angel. Did you see that coming? I didn't see that coming. Did you? No, no, no. No, whatever we are, whoever we are, God knows. And sometimes if we allow the enemy, the accuser, to whisper into our ears, we think that our sin will separate us from God. And that can happen if it's a process of continually running away from God. Right? But what do we, what we learn in scriptures, right? That, that our sin is not what repels us from God, but instead it's our shame. What happened in the garden, right? Genesis chapter 3 is really almost the entire human experience and story, right? Adam and Eve make a choice. They choose to disobey God. And when God shows up, what do they do? They hide. This is what sin does. It's not, it's not the sin itself. It's shame and guilt. And the question God asks, I think it's so comical, right? Where are you? Like, oh, by the way, God is everywhere. So it's not as if you can hide behind a bush and can't see you. The question he's really asking is more rhetorical. Do you understand where you are now? Because you are now outside of what I had for you. You are outside of what, God, what I wanted for you. And in the Psalms, we see people with sin. And again, we're going to look at David. Of course, we have to look at David. We're going to look at uh, a point in David's life where he, where he, he acted and behaved in a certain way. And, and, but in that, rather than running away from God, he runs towards God. The other thing we see in the Psalms is, 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 is that God is with us in the storms. Now, while sin is internal, it's something that we've done, storms are external. A few weeks back, there was, a, uh, there was like a, a rainstorm, and, and it was windy and all that. And um, on our deck, we have a, a, an umbrella. And of course, it's like leaning, right? My wife's like, go out and take that down. I'm like, you go out and take that down. But of course, I went out because... I'm afraid of my wife. No, um, I, I went out and took it down, right? But I, I get out in the back and all of a sudden the wind hits me and, and the rain hits me. But what I realize is that this is not me causing this. This is external to me. That's what a storm is. It is external. But storms take different, uh, different uh, images, right? A storm could be walking into work and you're told that you're no longer working. A storm can be a relationship that, um, that ends, a storm could be a diagnosis from the doctor. A storm can be, it's anything external to you, right? It's anything external to you. That's what a storm is. And in the Psalms, we see individuals who are in the middle of storms. And the question they ask is, God, are you with me in this storm? Right? Are you with me in this storm? And so these storms that are external to us, we are realized, we, we see very clearly that God is with us and suffering. We, as North Americans, and I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, but we do not know how to suffer properly. And I know that sounds like a bizarre statement to say, right? We look at our lives, and if we don't get a proper parking spot, if we don't have enough money for a coffee, or we don't go on a great vacation, or if our pleasure centers aren't quite fired up, we are suffering, right? We are suffering. I'm bored. That's, that's the type of suffering. I'm this, I'm that, I'm suffering, right? But really, we know that suffering can take place in different ways as well, too right? When things take place, and again, we've said this before at UCC, control is an illusion. Suffering removes that illusion of control from us quite easily, right? One day you are experiencing life and it's good. And the next day, it all goes upside down, right? In that suffering, 
we have a, a mix of emotions. We, sometimes we feel responsibility. Sometimes we feel uh, anger towards other people. Sometimes we feel anger towards the cosmos. How can this happen? Why me, right? I love what C.S. Lewis says. When, when we ask God, why, you know, why me? C.S. Lewis's response was always, why not you, right? Why, what makes you so special that you get to you know, circumvent the suffering of humanity? And as North Americans, we don't suffer well because in our sufferings, we tend to shake our fists at God and curse God. How could you? How, how, why? Right? Instead of realizing that this is a part of the fellowship of Jesus in our suffering. And in the Psalms, what we see is in sin, in storms, and sufferings, we see the writers tell us that God is with us in those moments. That he's not far off. He's not aloof. He is not separated. He's not like, oh, I didn't see that coming. I'm going to stay over here. Or, wow, your life is real mess. I think I'm going to, I don't, I don't really like messes, you know. Or, wow, you are just... Right? And again, we can kind of chuckle, we can kind of go, ah, well, but in these moments, we actually can feel that. Right? In our sins and our storms and our sufferings, we can actually feel separated from God. And that's the first mistake. Right? That's the first mistake. Because as soon as we believe we are separated from God, then all of a sudden we believe that whatever is taking place from us, to us, with us, for us, that God is not in it. And if we believe that, then we are truly, truly lost, right? If we only believe that God is a God of the good times, then we are truly lost. Because in that moment, we can have the enemy place this wedge that will separate us from God. You know, as a pastor, I, I meet a lot of eustas. I've mentioned this before. I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church, right? The eustas. What I find with the Eustas, though, is that they're individuals who haven't discovered that God isn't true or real, or the Bible is true or real, but there is a moment of pain in their lives. And that moment of pain defined their spiritual life. And that moment of pain was what moved them away from God. I used to believe in God, but then this took place. I prayed God, I asked God to remove it. I prayed God that he would get rid of it, and he didn't. Therefore, God isn't real. This happened in my life, and I was so angry at God. How God let this happen to me? And because of that, I don't believe in God anymore. Sin, storms, and suffering takes place. Absolutely, it does. And as we've talked about at UCC, we don't, we're not an outcome-based church. In other words, you can pray whatever you pray, and, and we, we do want to pray, and we do want to come before God. But we don't pray that the outcomes will be changed necessarily. Whatever is in God's will will happen, and we just have to accept that. But what we do pray is that we will be changed. That in the midst of the storms, our, our spirits will be changed. That we will draw closer to God because that's the point. And in the Psalms, we see this more clearly than any other, any other books of the Bible. That these individuals are going through these storms, but they call out to God. And, and, and God hears them. That God is present in that moment. I think another lesson we learned from the Psalms, and one I, I really thought about a lot, is that our emotions are part of our faith journey. Now, this is kind of interesting because, you know, for us at UCC especially, we try to, as much as possible, be authentic and honest and whatever that looks like. But what's interesting is, is that um, I've never been to a church where the pastor stands up and prays like this, God, are you deaf? Are you asleep? Are you distracted? Do you even care about me? Amen. Have a great day. But that's exactly what the psalmist says to God. So God, do you not listen? Do you not hear? Do you not see what's going on? Right? And so 
what I love about the Psalms is that there's an honesty that we have forgotten about in the church. Right? Like sometimes, sometimes you know, and they, you know, like we can come to church and we can pretend. Right? I, I grew up in a church tradition where everyone wore suits and dresses to church. Right? You woke, you, it didn't matter what was going on in your life as long as you looked nice. Right? And that sense of kind of masks that we wear has led us to believe that as long as external is okay, then whatever's happening internally, well, that's, that's your problem. Well, what the Psalms teach us is that these individuals who are writing to God are as honest as a human being could possibly be about what they're going through. And in their anger and in their frustration and in their loneliness, in their despair, God is there. And what I love about uh, a writer, by a, guy, a guy by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes said, truth is tough. And, and he goes on to say, talks about this idea that truth is tough. You can kick it, you can, you, can, you can scratch, you can bite it, you can punch it, you can whatever you want to it, it's still true. Right? And he uses this image of God. Right? Like, like sometimes what God really wants for us is not so much about saying nice words about how great God is, but saying how honest we are about God. Like, God, my life sucks right now. It just, it just does. And do you even care? And for some of us, we're like, God's fragile. He's like a little bunny rabbit in heaven. He'll fly. He'll run away if you say these things to him. But it's like, that's not God. You know why it's not God? Because if that was God, then what these writers are going through, what men and women throughout the history have gone through, well, God would not be there for them. But instead, what we see is in a rejoicing, in our suffering, in our pain, right? Look at uh, Psalm 109.22. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. Can you, can you feel the writer's despair? Can, can you feel that whatever's taking place is not external, but it's internal, and that his heart is wounded? Um, if it, uh, Psalm 55, 4, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. There's a point of despair, but also absolute fear. These are what the Psalms teach us, is that our emotional journey is, is a part of our faith journey. And sometimes it's just honesty that is necessary. Right? When I meet these people who are used to us, what some of them need to say is, I was angry at God. I was mad at God. But he is God. And because he is God, I will walk through this. And hopefully, as I look back upon whatever it was, when I look back upon it, I will understand. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not here to say that there's nice, easy answers. But I am here to say that God can take whatever we have. And if he can't, then he is not God. What the Psalms teaches us is that these individuals, these men and women that came before God, they said, Lord, please hear me. Right? You know, when we think of Psalms as, as songs, we think of choral like, oh, you know, like choral music, right? Sometimes the, songs, uh, the Psalms are punk rock. Sometimes, like, just they're angry. Sometimes they're country music of longing. Sometimes they're kind of poppy of, of happiness, right? They are different genres of music, right? As, as that one quote by Bono said, right? Sometimes they're the blues, right? It's not just a type of music. It is a multiple type of music that captures, right? What do you listen to when you're happy? What do you listen to when you're sad? What do you listen to when you are at whatever emotional state you're at? Well, the Psalms are there for you as well too, right? The Psalms are not just simply fun, happy, fluffy music, but they are visceral and they are authentic with who we are. Another thing I think we see in the book of Psalms is that in the midst of our sin and our storms and our suffering, in the midst of all these things that we go through, faithfulness and adversity matters. 
Now, this is going to be kind of interesting because what I've seen in the Psalms is the psalmist will start off by saying, well, by just kind of, you know, offloading their complaints. God, why? God, do you see? But what happens is that's not the end of the story. That when you read through the psalm, there's something that takes place within them. There's something that happens within them that they at least acknowledge that he is God. And whatever's taking place, that he is God. And so one of the things we have to remember is in the sin, in the storms, in the suffering, in the silence, and whatever would be, whatever part we are, sometimes all that God wants from us is faithfulness. Faithfulness is an interesting word. It's not a word that we use a lot, right? We, we, we don't talk about being faithful. But it's this idea of integrity. It's this idea of like sticking it out even when things are bad, right? It's, it's the foundation of marriage. It's a foundation of friendship. It's a foundation of church, of, of, of family, right? It's, it's being faithful even when you don't want to, right? When you see a person, you just want to punch them, but you hug them instead. But you tell them you want to punch them, but you're hugging them instead, right? That's the honesty part. So the idea that the Psalms teaches us is that in adversity, and adversity is this great word that kind of says, like, whatever it would be, God expects us to be honest. He expects us to be vulnerable. But he does expect us to be faithful. Because if we are not, something can take place. When we go through something, experience something, feel something, think something, we are giving a choice and opportunity. And the choice is an opportunity to say to ourselves, we are God. Whenever someone says, that's not fair, when everyone says, this shouldn't happen, this should be this way, what they are basically saying is, I know how it should be. Right? I know how it should be. It should be this way. And that's fine. But what you're really saying is, the way I see the world is absolutely without, without, uh, without any kind of filters. I, I'm absolutely honest and brilliant and, and I can see. And therefore, if it doesn't happen this way, if God doesn't do it that way, well then, he's not God. If he's not God, then who is? Oh, I know, we are. We're, we must be God, because if we can see with such clarity, and God can't, we are supplanting God in our lives, and we are saying we must be God. And what the psalmist teaches us is that in the midst of whatever we're going through, God is God. And whether you like it or not, he expects us to trust him and be faithful. And that's a struggle, and I want you to know, I don't mean to flippantly throw that out there and say, oh yeah, you can just be faithful no matter what. When we talk about Christianity historically and around the world today, and again at UCC we've talked about this, but whether it's the underground Chinese church, sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and even in the Middle East, what's taking place in the Middle East right now, it's just incredible what God's doing there as well. These brothers and sisters in Christ, they face adversity that you can't even imagine. You can't. I can't. And yet they have found a way to stand before their accusers or oppressors and even in many cases their executioners and say, whatever you do to me here on this earth, he is still God. You can take my property, you can take my friends, you can take my family, you can take my job, take my education, you can take my life. But he is God. And he is worthy of my worship. And I will, not, I will not recant. I will not, I, will not, I will not speak against him. He's God. Faithfulness and adversity matters. And I wish we would realize that more. It doesn't mean that we have to be happy. It doesn't mean we have to say, oh, no, everything's fine. 
my life's falling apart, but it's fine. Right? That's not faithfulness. That's dishonesty. Faithfulness is, man, I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. I don't even feel like going to church. But God is God. And because he is God, I will trust him. Yet will I praise him. And I will walk with him through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, where's that found? In the Psalms. Faithfulness matters. And these writers, time and time again, they speak of what's going on in their lives. They speak of what's going on. But faithfulness seems to matter to God. Um, This last one's going to kind of surprise you a little bit. But it's something that kind of kept coming out of me at the Psalms. If you follow God, you will have enemies. Did you know that the word enemy is used in the Psalm over 100 times? As a matter of fact, if you do a word count of different words in the book of Psalms, the word enemy is in the top 10 words that are used in the book of Psalms time and time again. Now, what I think is so interesting about that is that in the book of Psalms, again, remember we we are talking about an ancient Middle Eastern culture. So yes, people are actually, you know, actually trying to take your lives, right? David's writing about an army coming at him that people are trying to kill him. But that's not how enemies always used. It's also used in ways of saying, you know what? There are people who wish you harm. There are people who wish you not well. And these are people in your lives that hate the fact that you serve God. And we see this through in the Psalms in different contexts, in different ways. Um, I love what Psalm 25, 19 says. It says, see how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Um, Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbor and an object of dread to my closest friends. Psalm 41, 7, all my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me. These enemies aren't people who are trying to kill lives. These are people that are just wish you harm. And oftentimes, that harm can be because of the choice we've made to serve Jesus. Now, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine earlier this week, and I was telling him what I was talking about, and... I told him about this part there. And he said to me, make sure you let people know that sometimes people hate you because you're a jerk. And, uh, you know, you need to separate the uh, hate you because of God and hate you because you act in a way that perhaps makes people not like you. And that's, he's absolutely correct, of course. If you act and behave in a certain way and someone doesn't like you, well, you just need to ask for forgiveness and, and maybe change that behavior. But what the psalmist tells us is that if you authentically Honestly, follow God. People hate you for that. And not just people outside the church, because wouldn't that be just great if it was just, you know, it was us versus them type of a thing, right? But it's people inside the church as well. It's, it's, it's people in our lives, period, right? It's like, I, I wore this shirt because it kind of reminded me of the Psalms, right? I love what it says, right? God loves the people you hate. Right? It's kind of an interesting reminder that you can have enemies, but even though they may hate you, God still loves them and that they are still precious in his sight. And if you re- remember that, if you understand that, then the person who's your enemy can be your enemy, but they can also be somebody that can be transformed by God as well too. And what the psalmist teaches us is that in the midst of being attacked, and that can happen in different contexts in different ways, we must not behave in kind. 
We must we must not attack back. We must not say you know we not we must we must not use our own uh, self righteousness to elevate or to attack or to go after people. But instead, we just say they're yours, Lord. Because even though they are treating me this way, they are still your sons and daughters, and I give them to you. And if we can really be in a, in a Christ-like stance, right? Love your enemies, turn the other cheek, right? Serve those who hate you, right? That's the very crux of what it means to be a servant as Jesus understands it. And, but Jesus did not invent it. Um, it's actually something that the Psalms teaches us quite well. Psalms is the nexus point of head and heart. And because of this, we find true revelation of who and what God is. A nexus point is, is a meeting point of different things. Right? Different connecting points. I've said this before, and I'll just say it again, that um, our heads, right, our, our, our reasoning, our thinking, and our hearts, our emotions, our, our, our passions, right? These two things can, for most of our lives, can be in opposite directions. Right? Like, like it's like, oh, you know I know, that, I know I shouldn't eat this, but I really like chicken wings. Um, you know, I, I know I probably, it's like, you know, our head and hearts are always kind of this, this battle. But one of the things I've said to you before, and I'll just remind you right now, when our heads and our hearts agree on something, that's when true revelation takes place. It means that we finally have the centered point of like a balance of, of both parts of us, right? And both parts are important, but what God wants to do is he wants to bring them together. In the Psalms, I see this, this nexus point, this joining point of our heads and our hearts, of God speaking to our emotions, but God speaking to our thoughts and to our reason, our reasoning as well too. Psalms meets that. It's, it's, it's this point of like, I, I, both things are spoken to. And that's where true revelation is. And that's when I understand God deeply. And that's when I understand who God is in my lives. I'm going to sum up the entire book of Psalms in one sentence. I know, right? It's this. I have God. That is all. And that is enough. Literally, when we walk through the Psalms, we walk through the different ones. This theme is going to pop up time and time again. Let me give you a couple examples, right? We see this time and time again. Psalm 16, 8. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is, he is right beside me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress and protecting me from danger. Why should I tremble? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my savior and my God. Three things there. I. Not we, no one's coming to save me, no one's helping me, I. Second part, God. I have God, it's all I have, and that is enough. Remember in Galatians chapter one, we said, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for your sins? Is Jesus enough for your life? Well, the psalmist tells us something very important. In the sin, in the storm, in the suffering, in the silence, and with the enemies, with all these things, I have God, it's all I have but that's all I need, right? This is the crux, the cross of the Psalms. And time and time again, as we walk through these different Psalms, we, different, we experience different circumstances, different voices, different experiences. This theme comes out time and time again. All I have is God. That is it. That's all I need. Let me close with reading you the psalmiest Psalm of the Psalms. Uh, you can quote that. You can tweet that. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, for me, encapsulates 
the theme, the, the motion, the, the intent of the psalm. So I want to read to you. I'm reading, you, I'm reading it to you from the uh, New Living Translation, NLT. It says this. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Let me stop there for a second. Close your eyes. No distractions. Listen to the words. Let's start over again. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety, for he is my God and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though 10,000 are dying around you, those evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. Let's pray. Lord, you are our shelter. You are our strength. You are our fortress. And God, for any in this room right now that are in a storm or in suffering, who are questioning, who are looking to you, who may be in despair, because of the circumstances of the lives. They may have spoken to you time and time again about a circumstance, about a person, about a thing. But Lord, I pray that they would right now, they would sit quietly in your presence. They would receive who you are. And they would speak honestly about what they're feeling, about who, of what they're experiencing. Jesus, I thank you that you have not abandoned us. You have left your Holy Spirit to live within us, to, to be with us. I pray, God, for each person in this room right now that these writers who lived thousands of years ago, who experienced adversity that we can't even imagine, but yet they looked to the heavens and they said, God, all I have is you, and that is enough. Let that be our prayer, let that be our proclamation. And let that be our present situation, Lord. Be with us this week as we go out and live and let our light shine for you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.